Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. A perpetual question on the left. What to do about the Democratic Party? Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably heard multiple discussions, uh, including on this very podcast, on this question. Maybe you're tired of it, uh, but it's something that we all are constantly having to wrestle with every day in our political practice. And somebody who's written quite a bit on this question uh, is Eric Blanc, who is a frequent contributor to Jacobin, as well as someone who is working on a book for Verso Books on the party question. And he's got an article in Jacobin at jacobinmag.com called The Birth of the Labor Party Has Many Lessons for Socialists Today, where he goes through the early days of the British Labor Party and its founding starting in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. And as I say during my discussion with him, I was kind of shocked reading and editing his piece how directly many of the lessons from the British Labor Party apply to what it is that socialists are trying to do in the United States today. It's obviously a very different political and economic and cultural and just time, context, everything is different in many ways, but uh, there are, are indeed many lessons to be learned from studying this history. You can, of course, read the article. I'll link to it in the show notes to this piece. Eric Blanc is a frequent contributor to Jacobin. He is the author of a book in our Verso Books series, Red State Revolt, which we have interviewed him over in the past. And here's my conversation with Eric. Eric Blanc, welcome. It's good to be on. Returning champion. What is this, number three? Number four? Five? I will I, say nine or ten, <laughs> in case no listeners have been really following that closely. Definitely the most frequent uh, guest on this podcast, uh, Eric Blanc, uh, owing to your uh, prodigious productivity. Um, and speaking of your productivity, uh, the, the conversation that we're about to have on the question of a, a political party of our own in the United States is one that uh, you are working on a book about, yeah? Yeah, that's uh, that's the plan. I'm, I've been knee-deep in it for all my free time for the last three or four months. And yeah, the book should be out maybe next year. And uh, you also have another book that recently came out or is about to come out. Can you just mention that for all your your many fans listening? Oh yeah, this is a more of a deep cut with uh, somewhat less immediate repercussions for the United States maybe. It's about the sort of working class parties in the Russian Empire a century ago and what we can learn from them. So yeah, it's, it's similar on parties, but in a really different context. I guess maybe that's the tie. That's looking at politics when you're organizing under autocracy. And what we're going to talk about today is what do you do actually when you have a capitalist democracy and the contexts do matter. This is the story that I love telling about you to embarrass you when I'm talking about Eric Blanc to other people. I'm like, yeah, Eric uh, went to Finland and learned Finnish because he decided that there were important lessons in the Finnish archives for <laughs> socialists in the United States and around the world today. So he just decided to learn Finnish. And, and Unfortunately, this only that. impresses Micah. This only <laughs> impresses you. So it's sort of like, maybe it was worth it. Unclear. Remains to be seen. Well, I'm, I, yeah, yeah, I'm your number one fan, Eric. I, I appreciate oh, thank it. Thank so. you. I'm your number one fan. <laughs> so, all right. End of podcast. <laughs> So let's uh, start with uh, your article in Jacobin, uh, The Birth of the Labor Party Has Many Lessons for Socialists Today. Before we get into that history, which is what your article is focused on, remind us, basic question, 
one that we've talked about on this podcast before, but but I want to start with, why does it matter that we in the United States do not have a party of our own on the left? It matters a lot. Um, basically, you can point to most bad things in this country and the fact that they are significantly worse here, even compared to other capitalist countries, is in large part because we don't have a mass workers party. We've never had, unlike every other advanced capitalist country in the world. So that means our welfare state is a lot uh, smaller. The most egregious example of that is the absence of something like Medicare for all or something even more robust like the national health care of the British system, for instance. It means that our working class is significantly more divided. So you can see that in the fact that really the polarization of the 2020 elections, the fact that Trump almost won and won a lot of working class voters, not just white voters, but even uh, an increase in black and brown voters. This is all a reflection of the fact that the capitalist class has hegemonized the political process really almost entirely throughout the last uh, century and a half. And the repercussions, we just see it every day. And you came up with this idea of a dirty break strategy, the, a dirty break from the Democratic Party. Um, you've written about it in Jacobin and elsewhere. Can you just remind folks what is the dirty break strategy as well as um, what are the past strategies that your formulation of the dirty break is responding to that haven't worked? Sure. Historically, in the United States, there were two main left strategies for how to deal with the dilemma of the absence of a party of our own. One is what we could call and what's been called the clean break strategy, which is more or less you at every single point should never support a Democrat, should never run as a Democrat or a Republican. You basically found your party now, found a third party, and if you build it, they will come. So even if you start small, you build up, go hard against the Democrats, go hard against the Republicans, and sooner or later, workers will come around and you'll have a mass party like in the rest of the world. That's the clean break strategy. And the idea is that like you you can't be like, you know, you can't sully yourself with the with a party like the Democrats who are fundamentally a capitalist party. You need to make clear to people that like that kind of politics is, is fundamentally capitalist politics. That's not what we want to do. And so you're like, we need to do something else entirely and not sort of dirty art i shouldn't use the word dirty but yeah that's why it's that's why it's clean it's like you keep your principles clean you keep your politics clean by not being identified with in any way the democratic party and that's how you build class power and that's actually a plausible strategy that worked in a lot of countries but it hasn't worked in this country like dramatically hasn't worked in fact the parties that have attempted this for the most part have uh, remained very marginal unlike in most uh, other advanced capitalist countries. And that has to do with something we'll talk about, which is the particular electoral configuration of this country, which makes us different. So that's one strategy that has failed. Um, Another strategy that has been attempted and also failed is what we can call a realignment strategy, which is sort of a fancy way of saying we should try to take over the Democratic Party and make it a party for social democracy, a party for workers. And this was most famously attempted in the 1930s and in the 1960s. And we have to say, failed pretty spectacularly. The Democrats were pushed left on some issues, but at no point did they even come close, really, to becoming a party in which the left or representative workers were dominant. And because of that, 
we have all of the you know weak welfare state provisions and divisions politically uh, that you see around us today. Yeah, I mean, we should be clear. Me and Megan Day write in Bigger Than Bernie about this strategy, and uh, you know it was a failure. On the other hand, we shouldn't downplay the accomplishments, like the driving out of white supremacists from the Democratic Party in the 1960s. I mean, like there were some really monumental things that were achieved through that strategy, but ultimately, it has left us with this party that is still this neoliberalized, uh, you know, pro corporate party that is not advancing a working class agenda in any way. Yeah, that's right. So they failed in the goal of building a workers' party, but they did succeed in uh, helping win some reforms. And that's part of the difficulty is that precisely because they were able to push the Democrats to pass some good things, ironically, it in some ways, it made it harder to eventually form uh, a workers' party insofar as it legitimized aspects of the Democratic Party establishment. So what is the dirty break strategy? Yeah, the dirty break strategy, you know, briefly put, is the idea that in order to build a mass workers' party in this country, at this point, that passes through using and intervening in the Democratic Party ballot line to build our independent organization as socialists, as workers, in the direction of an eventual split inside the Democratic coalition and the formation of a mass workers' party. And what difference does it make to articulate the eventual need for a party of our own as part of your political strategy right now versus remaining agnostic on this question of whether we need a party of our own or not and just going about our business trying to build a socialist or left-wing current within the confines of the Democratic Party because your strategy argues that the Democratic Party is where the action is at most of the time at this point because of the specificities of the U.S. political system. Um, People who don't agree or, or aren't worried about whether or not we need a party of our own also who are on the left also think that uh, that uh, that we should be the action is within the Democratic Party so if, if there's sort of like a, a, a pretty you know uh, pretty decent agreement on what the tactics should be sort of in the short term why does it matter to be thinking about this question of having a party of our own in the long run sure I mean the first thing actually I, I would want to do is is really dive into a little bit more why it's so important right now to build up our independent organization. I don't actually think this is necessarily a point of disagreement, but it's just worth keeping in mind that really what differentiates uh, the approach that I think DSA is taking right now that I'm articulating and that people who might disagree uh, with me on the long-term vision also generally agree with is that the point of intervening within the Democratic Party is not just to sort of do good things and try to you know, talk about being progressives in the way that a lot of leftists have done over the last years and decades, but is to really build a distinct organization and distinct political profile. And we've seen that pretty effectively through things like the, you know, many candidates that have gotten elected by DSA in Chicago and New York in particular, where there's an independent apparatus linked to DSA where the candidates uh, identify as democratic socialists. To a certain extent, you can also see that through the election of people, you know, AOC and the squad who have some sort of a distinct profile and are linked to, even if in some ways, uh, tenuously, membership organizations. This is a way of of doing Democratic Party work, if you want to think of it that way, that does build independent class power. And I'm actually happy, I think it's a really good thing, that at this point that's the consensus really within the reborn socialist movement. So then the question is, 
Well, where does this dynamic take us? And your question was, does it matter to really think about all of the stuff down the road? And I'm sympathetic to the question of like, well, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe what we're doing is good now and we can check in down the road if conditions change. Because to a certain extent, that's true. I would briefly try to summarize the reasons why it does matter as far as the long-term vision as follows. One is like, we just need to be realistic about what the limitations are of running as Democrats today. It, it's not it's all it's not all just fine and dandy. Um, there are significant hurdles that that creates for us today. One of them is the fact that we are associated, whether we like it or not, with every bad thing that Biden or Pelosi does insofar as we're on the same ballot line. So that hurts our ability, for instance, to run in a lot of parts of the country in which the democratic brand is unpopular, unlike in some like deep blue urban cities. In a lot of parts of the country, running as Democrats, even right now, is hurts us rather than helps us. So we need to acknowledge that as a problem and not paper that over. The second is, if you really fully, um, I think, understand those limitations and the need, therefore, for having our own ballot line, as opposed to just like an independent organization intervening within the Democrats, then that does have immediate political ramifications. One of which is that it should push us to fight to democratize the electoral system because we want to get out of this trap. Even if for the time being we're stuck um, doing Democratic Party work largely for our electoral interventions, we want to be able to not be associated with corporate Democrats for a wide variety of reasons. And the best way um, to start moving out of that is both to build up our independent strength and to try to push the electoral system open so that there's more space to have, for instance, an independent workers' party that you don't have right now. And I was just say, the, the last major reason is, well, maybe two last major reasons, is we need to be able to provide a compelling vision to activists today who really are sick of the Democratic Party. And that's really important that there's a lot of people, for instance, who I think were around Force the Vote, which some listeners might have followed, who really understandably were just irate that the Democratic Party is not pushing for Medicare for all during a pandemic. And I think they're right to be irate about that. And so unless the socialist movement can provide a compelling vision for how we are going to build a party that represents us, not the billionaires, we are going to lose people who just sort of associate us with somehow being the liberal uh, or left wing of the Democratic Party. And the last thing is we just need to be prepared for the clash with the Democratic Party establishment. We shouldn't have any illusions that somehow the work we're doing right now is just going to be able to go on indefinitely without the apparatus at some point trying to like close off electoral laws. They can change the law to make it harder for us to run or finding different ways to just hurt our efforts. And so if we don't understand the necessity at some point for a break with the Democratic Party establishment, maybe not the ballot line, we can talk about that, but at least with that whole apparatus and operatives, then we're not going to be prepared for really the big struggles to come. So all of this is a kind of preamble to what your article actually is, which is a history of the early formation of the Labor Party in the United Kingdom. And you argue that that history has a lot of lessons for us today and what American socialists are currently trying to do in 2021. So why don't you just lay out that basic case of uh, what was going on in British politics in the uh, later part of the 19th and early part of the 20th century and uh, how it relates to what we're doing now? Sure. The big point in some ways is that <laughs> socialists and workers in the UK formed a mass workers party despite 
living in a political context like our own, which in many ways is not conducive for that project. So specifically, the electoral context of the UK is similar to the US insofar as you have just this overarching problem of the spoiler question, because you have what is called here and there the first past the post system, which is basically a winner takes all system, which means that if you're a left candidate, someone like think about Ralph Nader uh, to, you know, a few years ago or any Green Party candidate today, there's always this argument, which isn't necessarily wrong, that you're taking votes away from the Liberal Party in the UK or the Democrats, and that's going to help either the Tories or the Republicans in the United States. And so given that context, it's very hard to convince workers um, and even other socialists sometimes to make that break. And nevertheless, in the UK, they succeeded. It took an extremely long time. I mean, just to give a sense of it, the first sort of independent organizational uh, representation of workers began in the 1860s. And the culmination of the Labor Party, which was founded in 1900, and then really became uh, stronger over the next two decades, they only became the dominant second party in the UK in 1918. So you're looking from the 1860s through 1918 is the process through which workers initially worked within the Liberal Party. And that's sort of the parallel. It's what I call the dirty break. And in that process, built up their independent strength, so much so that they were able eventually to uh, split away. In fact, in some ways, they got pushed out and form a new party. But then that in turn took another almost two decades to out flank the liberals. So it was a long process and we shouldn't think that there's some sort of like one magic fix to dealing with how you overcome a liberal corporate establishment. So you're advocating for a strategy that at least if the British case is going to be of any indication, uh, you and I may not live to see actually succeed. Well, you know, I think the timing issue is real. I, I, I'm not under any illusions that something like a dirty break um, approach will create a new party in the next five years, the next five months, maybe not even 10 years. How much longer it'll take is very hard to say. The crises of today in some ways, you know, climate change and everything else means that we do want to push things as quickly as possible. We don't just have an indefinite amount of time. So I would hope it wouldn't take 50 years again. But ultimately, that's not really under our control. The rhythm of these things in large part depends on not just the strength we can build, but what our opponents do. So walk us through some of the historical examples from the UK uh, about this whole process, how it came to fruition, what were the early attempts like, what were the kind of uh, false starts or the errors that uh, labor activists made? You know, how, how, what, what, go, go through the, the whole scope of, of how they eventually executed this dirty break. Sure. There's a, there's a lot in the article, so folks can check it out for if you're a real history nerd uh, and really want to delve into it. It's, it's not so easy to summarize, but I would say the first big step forward was the emergence of what we uh, call today and was called then actually Lib Labs. So these were workers' representatives who ran uh, as really liberals within the Liberal Party on the Liberal uh, Party ballot. And started winning representation for workers while at the same time being identified with liberals. That began in the 1860s and in some ways really lasted up through 1906, 1910 as a the hegemonic form through which workers tried to represent their interests in the UK. Parallel to that, though, those very attempts to work within and transform 
of the Liberal Party came up against their own limitations because it was a party like the Democrats that was dominated by rich people and, you know, liberal rich people, but rich people nevertheless, who really didn't want to have either workers take over their party or go too far in giving them the things that they needed. So they were able to pass significant reforms, and I don't think we should downplay those, but it always fell short of really what workers as a whole were demanding and expected. And so parallel to this lib lab development within the liberals, you have workers over and over again try to run their own candidates within the liberal party and come up against these local party machines that would refuse to accept the liberal, the, the labor candidates. And so what that meant is you had clash and clash and clash um, in which most workers' candidates were excluded. And that created the energy and organization and, and sort of discontent that allowed some socialists to eventually start organizing independently of the Liberal Party starting in the 1890s. And so uh, our good friend, Keir Hardy, who was kind of like the first worker to get elected, uh, did that in the early 1890s and famously kind of scandalized the um, the UK political scene with some of his rhetoric and dress. I don't know. We can talk about that if you're interested. I know you like talking about uh, sartorial uh, socialist uh, <laughs> modes of operation. But more or less then you start seeing a parallel rise of folks organizing outside of the Liberal Party, but still in some ways identifying with it because so many workers, and this is the big point, most workers supported the Liberal Party in the same way as most progressive workers in the United States support the Democrats. So it forced socialists and labor activists to work within the party that um, that most workers were looking to. And just as a counterexample of how you could go wrong, and this is sort of the clean break approach back then, there was an attempt to form sort of like a clean break, liberal suck type approach in which they just founded a socialist party and hoped that they would replicate the sort of German model, which was predicated on this very hard uh, isolationism from other parties and classes, which worked sort of amazingly well in Germany at the time, the famous Social Democratic Party of Germany. The Social Democratic Federation of the UK tried to replicate that and failed miserably. They just didn't get anywhere because the contexts were different. Most workers supported liberals in the UK, unlike in Germany. It was much harder for uh, kind of the legal apparatus reasons to form a third party that was viable because of the spoiler question in the UK. And just because it was a more democratic country, there was more space within the political system for workers to get some of their interests met and to work within the liberal party, unlike Germany. So their attempts to form a clean break went nowhere basically led to creation of a very bizarre socialist sect. And that's ultimately, I think, one of the dangers we see today and we've seen throughout the U.S. is that the clean break approach, even though it's motivated by, I think, the right intentions, can lead us to be much more marginal than we would be if we understood the context better and sort of met workers where they're at and tried to move them in the direction we want them to get rather than expecting the workers just to eventually come around because we have the right ideas. I don't think politics works that way. Reading that history that you tell in the piece, it was kind of shocking to me. I was like, wait, is this, is this accurate? Is this real? Because what you're describing really does feel like it fits almost directly on uh, U.S. politics. And there are these examples of these labor activists who th you understand why they're impatient. Um, you 
understand why they are have had it up to here with the liberals uh, because they are this party that is not a party of the working class and you understand why they want to take this clean break approach. But the most important point that you bring up over and over in these historical examples is that in 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 acting out of that frustration going sort of too far and insisting on this clean break strategy um they end up shooting themselves in the foot they're not able to construct the kind of party that we all want to see constructed uh because they are as you said importing these tactics from different contexts that don't work in their own context yeah that's right i was actually surprised just that nobody had written this article before i when i was just started reading this history to see if there's any lessons we learned i kept on expecting that you know there's a book or an article saying well look this is the parallels and so that's surprising but you're right that the the dynamics really are quite similar um, even though it took place so long ago. And and it's surprising, therefore, that like nobody's really looked into it. I think in part because the strategy that this illustrates really has gone against the grain of what the hegemonic approaches for you know almost a century have been in the United States, which was either like realignment or clean break. And this kind of muddy, dirty history uh, is more illuminating, but just kind of goes against the grain of accepted wisdom on the U.S. left. So you're surprised that... Y- a theory that you came up with uh, has not been, you know, the history has not been articulated in light of that theory uh, by anyone else when you're the one who <laughs> came up with the dirty break strategy. I just pat myself on the back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so you were just talking about the dangers of this sort of like sectarian approach and the approach of insisting on using uh, models that worked at other contexts and other times in history uh, in, a, in a totally different historical context. So that's the, the danger of the clean break strategy. Uh, are there examples from this history that you tell that uh, speak to the dangers of the opposite version of of trying to realign a party like the liberals um and 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 having that fall flat sure there were people who who did try um some of the most prominent socialists tried to they didn't use the word realign they used the word permeate they had a strategy of permeation in which the idea was socialists are just going to kind of permeate get inside the liberals and will convince them by the brilliance of our ideas and through patient work um of socialism and that was attempted. In some ways, there were local areas where it kind of did work. Um, there were aspects of that in, for instance, like some of the coal mining regions in which there just weren't that many liberals around. So the coal miners were like, oh, okay, liberal parties is our party. And they ran it sort of like a workers' party. So it wasn't so implausible. The problem is you weren't able to generalize that on a national level because the structure of the liberal party was such that actually the decisions over who could be candidates was decided by these local party machines that weren't democratically elected. So it came up against its own sort of contradictions in that sense. I, I would argue that the ultimately, even those attempts were illuminating. They weren't like all for naught. The attempts to try to take over the liberals were in some ways a necessary precondition for people eventually breaking. If you hadn't had you know millions of workers trying to make the liberal party their party, there's no way to expect that they would have eventually broken. So it was positive, but some people stuck with it well after the strategy stopped working. You know, after workers already leaving and getting uh, sort of uh, openly supporting socialists, there were still people who stuck it out in the Liberal Party well past uh, its prime. And so that's the danger is you, cannot, you can lag behind workers even when they're moving. And so you have to really have a concrete analysis of where folks are at. There's no formulas Uh, that work in all times and places. I think that that's one of the big lessons of this history is good politics, like mass politics for the millions, 
is always context specific. And so you have to always be looking at who's moving where, what is the actual situation, reassessing, you know, and over and over again, sometimes the socialists went too far and then they had to like make a retreat or they went a little bit too modest uh, when they could have been a little bit more bold. And I just think we need to accept that that's part of what it means to do mass politics, part of what it means to be a socialist. There's no way to avoid sort of bending to co-optation or marginalization. That's just the price you pay for doing serious politics. And the only way forward through that is kind of collective discussion and reassessing on the basis of experience. I mean, as a kind of aside, I feel like a lot of people use someone like Lenin, they like quote him for whatever their purposes are to, you know, like beat other people with to say, well, you think that we should do X, Y, Z, but like, what about what Lenin said at this time? And, you know, to me, that's always felt like a, uh, uh, like a fundamentalist Christian, like pulling out a verse of the Bible to tell you why you're going to hell. Can I ask though, Micah, something. can I ask I, if I'm wrong that you also tweeted that uh, Lenin would have voted for Bernie? So perhaps you're being hypocritical here. Well, no, but what? So the, <laughs> the reason why I tweeted that Lenin would have voted for Bernie is what I'm getting at here. Is that okay. if you actually read someone like Lenin, uh, you realize that he, what he thinks should be done. I mean, obviously, he has a core set of political principles that he, you know, refuses to violate. But like in terms of what he thinks should be done tactically uh, at any time, you know, what he says in the late 1900s is very different from what he says in the 1910s, and it's always like context specific. And that is what you know, good and sober. Uh, political analysis and strategy should look like is is constantly uh, adjusting based on what the uh, existing context is. Okay, you're innocent. I take back my criticism. <laughs> I, I believe this podcast is not about whether or not Lenin would have supported Bernie, but I believe a hundred percent, not trolling anybody, that Lenin would have supported Bernie's campaign. But we're we don't, we're not going to talk about that right now. Um, so why don't you get into what happened with uh, these labor activists, uh, like? W- you, some of that I mean they didn't just get to like take over the liberal party obviously they 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 had to form their own party eventually and and part of that was because they were pushed out of the liberal party right yeah so the big struggles really here take place in the 1890s in which you've had now decades of lib lab you know liberal labor representation in parliament and workers have started building up independent power getting their expectations raised things like that. And the limitations then of the liberals come up because first and foremost, they refuse to accept enough workers, even though uh, workers are majority, to accept enough workers as candidates for the liberal party. And so you start seeing in the 1890s um, attempts to run as independents. You see uh, some independent workers elected to parliament. And that leads in 1900 to the formation of the Labor Representation Committee, which was sort of like a joint effort of unions and socialist groups to have an independent wing of parliament represented by workers. And that in turn made uh, more progress, but still limited. You know, we're still talking minority compared to the liberal party. They actually had to make a pact in 1903 and 1906 with the liberals to sort of uh, share votes in by which the uh, liberal would support workers in some contexts and the workers' candidates would support liberals in other contexts in order to avoid splitting the vote. And it was that pact that in turn gave the labor representatives enough representation that they decided to call themselves a labor party in 1906 and were seen now by enough workers as somewhat of a viable political force. They were still like a very minor 
in the grand scheme of things, uh, force. They were by no means like close to as strong as either the Tories or the Liberals, but they were there and they were starting to accumulate their own strength. Now, for the most part, outside of the you know, Liberal Party structurally. But politically, they were still identified with the Liberal Party because the Liberal Party was in government. And in many ways, they were allied with it and propped it up because of the sort of nature of the British parliamentary system. And that created a lot of contradictions in the same way as like any socialists, you could think about supporting Joe Biden uh, against Trump created all sorts of contradictions. Because on the one hand, being associated with a representative of your class enemy is confusing and uh, demoralizes people and is not really ultimately what we aspire to. On the other hand, it was true that if these socialists hadn't allied with the liberals, that in practice what that would have meant is the Tories coming into power and the inability to pass a lot of very significant reforms in this time. You know, this is a period in which the liberal uh, labor alliance won things like taxing the rich, expanding health care, some of the first welfare state, like national insurance, national uh, healthcare to a certain extent um, was begun in this period. So they were able to win real things. And the difficulty was that they were like a junior partner to the liberals still, even though they had their own party. And it was really only then in uh, during World War One, in which the liberal party split because of its sort of controversial leadership of the war that created the space for the labor party in 1918 to finally take sort of a different approach and going very hard against the liberals, sort of all out uh, pushing candidates in every single part of the UK. And were, they were able to displace finally the liberals as the second major party in the UK. Now, I have several questions about that. One is you just mentioned that in the beginning, before World War One, when the, when the Labour Party was first founded, by that point, they had won some foothold in terms of a legitimacy in the eyes of voters like they they had built an identification um in in the minds of especially working class voters that you know the the labor party is the one that's fighting for your interests not the liberals um and obviously that's a big part of what socialists in the united states today are trying to do within the democratic party uh and you know the long-term goal would be to 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 pull off something exactly like that. So um, I guess I have just a more tangible question of how did they do that? Because at that point, you know, in, in, in the, the period that we're discussing when the labor party doesn't exist, all of these people who want, you know, there, there maybe are trade unionists or they sympathize with the cause of labor. Um, but at that point, the, the Liberal Party is where you would go in order to advance, to have any hope of advancing politics like that. So what are the tangible ways in which these labor activists did begin to pull these voters away from the Liberal Party uh, and towards this new uh, Labor Party? Yeah, so it really depends on what period you're talking about. You know, initially, the... Um, identification with the liberals was much stronger. They didn't, you know, the socialists and liberal uh, and labor activists didn't really run as independents. They had a sort of independent profile within the liberal party. They pushed up against those limitations, eventually started running more outside. Um, and I would say that the big thread that connects all of the different periods, even when they were, you know, harder or softer against the liberals, was that they always tried to build both an independent organization and independent political profile. So by organization, they had unions, they had the Independent Labor Party, 
they had the LRC, the Labor Representation Committee, and eventually the Labor Party. Because in order to be able to like clearly differentiate between the liberals and uh, the labor side of politics, they needed not only just different policies, which a lot of times people don't follow the closeness of policies, they needed to be able to have a different organization and different uh, way for workers to organize and to kind of get involved in politics than the liberals. And so they were able to provide that space uh, even as they were sort of evolving outside of the confines of the liberal party. That's one thing they did. So I think there's lessons there clearly for today, which is that even if we're obliged to sort of identify as Democrats or as Democrats, unless we have an organization like DSA or something bigger for workers to get involved in, the general tendency will be for us to get absorbed into the liberal party uh, or the Democratic Party rather than moving people away. Right, So there's a real danger of getting co-opted. And the best way to overcome that is by building independent organization, like good policies and like good Twitter uh, dynamics. And you know all of that stuff is useful, but it's going to be limited unless you can have an organization that can sort of change the correlation of forces. That's the first thing. The second, and this is less obvious, but I think just as important for today is socialists rebuilt a strong, or in that sense, actually, they built for the first time a strong militant labor movement. And if it hadn't been for this labor upsurge in the UK, then it's extremely unlikely that workers would have had the class consciousness and class organization and uh, disenchantment with liberals necessary to have founded their own party. So in some ways, the big events that led to the eventual formation of a labor party had nothing to do directly with electoral politics, but were taking place in the huge strike movements of the late 1880s and early uh, 1890s, in which for the first time, British workers started doing mass strikes. They started organizing unions that brought together not just sort of the more privileged workers, but uh, the skilled and unskilled. And it was that labor upsurge, which forced the unions to, in some ways, be more combative against the bosses. But that in turn led the bosses to try to crack down on labor law uh, to track down on the unions by, for instance, making it harder to strike, making it harder to unionize. And in turn, then the unions, um, because they were fighting back in the workplace, understood that for that to be successful, they needed more political representation in, representation in parliament because they needed labor law to remain you know, favorable to them so that they wouldn't get thrown in jail or fined every time they tried to strike. So it was that workplace militancy pushed a lot of the unions in the direction of political representation. And I think that today it's very hard to imagine something like a mass workers party, whether it's taking over the Democrats or splitting away, forming without a really significant uh, shift within organized labor. Because as long as workers feel um, powerless, that's going to have repercussions at the ballot box that we can't you know, paper over. And the fact that Bernie didn't win or Corbyn didn't win, I think is a reflection of how far you can go and the limitations without an organized working class that has been able to sort of assert its power at work and then hopefully in the electoral sphere as well. So it's not just a matter of can you come up with and execute the right electoral strategy on paper, you know, you come up with it on paper at first and then and then you just carry it out through elections. You also need to be taking into account these broader questions of what's going on in the working class like in shop floors around the country and and we we can't execute uh much of anything uh, including forming a party of our own if there's not that concomitant activity happening among the working class 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, the future of our current electoral project, to a certain extent, will be won by transforming and expanding the unions today in this country. You know, imagine what Bernie could have done if the whole labor movement were the actual labor candidate. You know, it would just been a whole different ballgame. That's so true in Chicago, where I live, because the city has been transformed over the last 11 years by the presence of this new Chicago Teachers Union um, from a leadership that took over in 2010. Read all about it, Strike for America by Micah Utrecht <laughs> from 2014. Um, you know, that, that this new leadership, this left militant democratic leadership of the Chicago Teachers Union, led by Karen Lewis, took over in 2010, took the union out on strike in 2012, and in doing so, totally changed the politics of the entire city of Chicago and really created this new coherent left pole in electoral politics in the city of Chicago uh, that the CTU was one of the players that was at the center of, but involved other progressive unions and progressive community organizations, et cetera, et cetera. And that changed political context that is a result of the union striking in 2012 and then going on strike again and again, uh, organizing charter school teachers who themselves have gone on strike many times. Um, all of that opens up the space in 2019 for half a dozen members of the Democratic Socialists of America to get elected to the city council and to have a broader progressive current of Chicago politics cohere in a way that it has never cohered, at least in the lifetimes of uh, anybody you know who's alive today. Um, and so, you know, people people used to ask me when I was on uh, doing Zoom events for uh, my book, Bigger Than Bernie. You know, like how do we how do we find another uh, AOC, or how do we do what you guys did in Chicago and elect half a dozen socialists to our city council? And I would say, go organize a union and go <laughs> go on strike with your coworkers. I mean, that that is an essential piece of being able to transform the political context uh, in which we can make advances electorally. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't have anything to add to that. That's really well said. Um, people ask the question rightfully, I think, sometimes when, when hearing about history like this, what about the fact that we live in two, you know, the, the American political system is extremely different from the British one. The British one has all kinds of problems, of course, but it's a parliamentary system. Uh, it seems to be less undemocratic than the American political regime, which really is a pretty low bar there. But because uh, America is not a very democratic country. Um, but, you know, what does the, 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 the fact of this different context of our, our respective political systems mean for what kind of lessons we should take from this history? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I The first thing I would say is, in some ways, the big story is still how similar the contexts are. You know, the, the main a lot of the main things that people point to is why you couldn't ever have a third party in the United States. Uh, the f main one being the first past the post electoral system, you know, which creates the spoiler problem. They they had that there and they were able to overcome that. So that's that's just worth saying. Um, but it's true that there are differences. The, the major things that are even further impediments to a workers' party in a sort of independent sense in the United States is that we have a presidential system. So as you mentioned, yeah, we don't have a parliamentary system in which the government is formed by just electing the representatives of parliament. But you have this direct presidential um, you know, race every four years in which really crowds out the space 
for independence because every four years you just have this dominant political dynamic, which is really the main way people identify and participate in politics in this country, in which there's very little structural space for a third party. So I do think that that is a real obstacle um, that we shouldn't underestimate. And that does mean that I think the possibilities of and forms of the break are going to look different here. The second major difference is that we have a, a primary system that they didn't have in the UK. And this is actually more contradictory because, you know, as we mentioned, one of the reasons why the Liberal Party was eventually sort of discarded by workers and the left was that, you know, just the party machine openly refused to accept most worker candidacies. Now, in the United States, the it doesn't really work that way because the, at least for the time being, the electoral laws are such that primaries uh, are the way through which candidates are selected. So you have something like AOC running and winning against the establishment candidate, and the party establishment can weigh in, and certainly does. You know, you saw that with, uh, particularly in the Bernie campaign, but in a lot of places, they have more money, they have the connections, and so they're able to defeat our candidates in primaries. But they don't have just, they can't just do that by fiat in the way that they could in the UK um, system. So I think that means, on the one hand, it's not impossible that the form through which a workers' party would take in the United States could conceivably be that we primary out all of the corporate Democrats and elect you know, a, a, a workers and socialist Congress and president uh, on the Democratic Party ballot line. I would still consider that a break because it would require an insane amount of independent organization and a full frontal war against the Democratic Party establishment. So I think that is still like a break in the formation of a new party. That being said, um, in some ways, I think that's probably the less likely um, form that we can expect a workers' party to take because all the establishment really has to do in this country to prevent that from happening in the short term or medium term is eventually change primary laws, that these laws aren't written in stone. There's nothing really that prevents them legally from just changing state laws from uh, to make it harder or impossible to run as socialists. And the fact that we saw that they were willing to even uh, in this last primary presidential a presidential primary to openly say that they would ignore the will of the voters if Bernie won the most votes and to block Bernie from being president. That's not a minor thing in a presidential system that the Democratic Party legally still has the right to basically block uh, progressive candidates from being presidential candidates. And there's no indication that they're going to change that. So my guess is that if there's going to be a workers party, it's more likely that it will take place through uh, of an eventual split or getting pushed out of the Democrats. But I think we should be open to both possibilities. And I don't think that we need to commit one way or the other. What we do need to commit to is the goal of a workers' party and building up independent organization and an understanding that at a certain point, that's going to lead to a decisive rupture with the Democratic Party establishment. And I'll add one last point about the sort of differences in the UK and the United States. The same dynamic of the you know, corporate Democrats potentially being able to change the law against us also is a dynamic that we can use. There's no reason that the left can't fight to democratize the U.S. political regime. For instance, by winning proportional representation, which for you know people who don't know would more or less end the spoiler problem because um, it would allow everybody, even if you don't get 50 plus one votes, to get some representation. And that means that if we were able to win a reform like that or a whole host of other reforms, 
that would change the way the U.S. political regime works, that would create the political space for us to be able to run and not be seen as spoilers. So I do think if you understand the importance of winning uh, a mass workers' party with its own ballot line, that does mean, I think, trying to democratize the U.S. political regime and not just sort of hoping and waiting to see that things will somehow uh, work out for us because we should prepare for a clash. I've always said about people like AOC and Bernie in response to people who are kind of critics of this dirty break approach that even if they don't believe that we need a, our own party, you know, their, their, their rhetoric is more about fighting for the soul of the Democratic Party rather than we need our own party someday. Even if that's the case, what they are doing in their day-to-day work is picking these fights within the Democratic Party establishment. They're like heightening the contradictions within the Democratic Party's coalition. And uh, they are pushing us towards a potential date, you know, in the future where somebody like an AOC could get, you know, forced out of the Democratic Party precisely because they're pushing so hard on some of the most key questions of, of, you know, what this party is. Um, And so even if, if like, AOC wouldn't say that she believes in a dirty break strategy, uh, much of what she does on a day-to-day level could be moving us closer in that direction. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we should actually learn from AOC and Bernie um, in a lot of ways. They're successful and, you know, we need to see what's working. And I I think for the foreseeable future, actually, it's very important that our, like, agitation not be the Democratic Party sucks, we need to split away as soon as possible, because that gives, A, the Democratic Party establishment a huge lever against us. There's a reason Bernie uh, sort of had to identify more as Democrats, because if we want to win over the base, we can't, uh, you know, sort of give the establishment Democrats a weapon to say these people are just sort of like interlopers who are opportunistically intervening and they don't have like the interests of you or the party at heart. They don't really even want to defeat the Republicans. They're more interested in defeating Democrats. So I think that just on a genuine level, we should be open to uh, the idea that we could potentially take over the Democrats. To me, it's not the most likely scenario, but it's conceivable enough that we can make a good faith effort to say, yeah, it's possible. But more importantly, in the short term, I do think the way you can agitate in a way that makes sense to people uh, for the need for a workers' party is, say, corporate politicians, corporate money out of the Democrats. You know, people get what that would mean. They can envision that. They could envision what a party led by Bernie Sanders would mean in which nobody takes corporate money. Now, whether we're able to do that, we'll see. But fighting around that is at this moment the way in which you can heighten the contradictions most, in which you can build an organization, and which whether we're either able to push out the corporate Democrats, which would be great. In some ways, it would be the easiest thing, uh, just, you know, uh, as far as not having to form a new party from scratch. But I think it's unlikely for the reasons I described. To my mind, the criticism uh, that we could make of the limitation of Bernie and AOC is not how they're approaching the Democratic Party as such, but it's that for the most part, they haven't used their like res- uh, their prestige and resources to directly tell people to join DSA or to build some sort of like mass membership organization. And that does make a difference um, because they can't win that fight with against the party establishment without a massive change in the relationship of forces that can only be brought by millions of more people and workers in particular getting involved in the political process as active agents. And that requires organization. That's not just voting uh, once every two years or once every four years. And so I think that that's really the task for the time being is to build that type of organization, which some people call a party surrogate, um, as the sort of mid-range 
form through which we can crystallize a new type of politics, a new type of organization. DSA right now is the main sort of like form that that is taking, but I think we want more unions to get involved. We want more organizations. We want Sunrise. We want Bernie and AOC and everyone else on the squad to support building that project and to say, this is how we are going to win uh, the demands we need, and this is how we're going to build the party that we all deserve. We've been talking about mostly big-picture theoretical questions about the strategy rather than the actual history that is uh, very rich and that is in your article, which is going to be linked to in the show notes. Um, and we've been talking about so much of this big picture stuff rather than the history. We didn't even get into uh, Keir Hardy, the early labor politician. And uh, as you mentioned, his, his sartorial choices, his hat. We, <laughs> the, the hat was a, a, key, uh, a key detail that we got corrected on, on Twitter by the, uh, the Keir Harder Society. that we, we misunderstood what the importance of his hat was. Yeah, we made it. We've made it. And when I saw that tweet, I was just like, okay, I, I, can, I can call it a day. Yeah, basically, basically, in an earlier draft of the article, I referred to uh, Keir Hardy, who, again, for listeners, was the first sort of independent worker socialist uh, elected to parliament. And he made this big splash on the political scene because instead of wearing the top hat that uh, was traditional at the time, he wore what the press called like a working man's cloth cap. So that's, you know, he got denounced for that. It was a scandal. You know, how could you breach etiquette like that? And so in initial draft that I posted like a part of on Twitter before the actual final article went out, uh, it, it included a mention of that. And the Keir Hardy Society, bless their hearts, responded and say, in fact, this was a myth uh, pushed by the, you know, corporate press of the time that in fact, Keir Hardy was wearing the correct hat for his tweed suit, which was a deerstalker cap, which folks, if they go to the website... Uh, Jacobin, you can see the photo of Keir Hardy, and I, I, I honestly uh, would not have been able to tell you what a deerstalker cap was if you'd asked me. But when you look at it, you're like, okay, that makes sense. So it looks almost like a hunting cap type thing, uh, and maybe that's why there's a Labor Party. It's hard to say whether there's a causation or correlation between the hat and the eventual rise of the Labor Party, uh, but I would say Listen, you're a social the data, scientist. The data, you're just asking questions here. I'm just saying the data should be explored. And and there's an additional thing is that in later years, for reasons I don't understand uh, what the implications were at the time, Keir Hardy started wearing a rainbow bow tie, which to me is very fashion forward and progressive for the era. I'm not sure if it had any connotations whatsoever other than that this is a man who likes to make a statement and is not you know unwilling to break etiquette. So... In some ways, he's like the Nathan uh, Robinson of the era, as far as his like sartorial <laughs> choices. So, if Nathan's or anyone's listening, you know, Nathan Nathan needs to write a piece about this guy. He's a kindred spirit. That's what clearly. I'm saying. So, it, it, I should ask Nathan if I'll write it for Jack. Yeah, there's there's something to be said there. Or Micah, you can try it out. We'll, we'll see if you get elected to uh, Congress if you start wearing a deerstalker cap and a rainbow bow tie. <laughs> Well, I, you know, we could ask Nathan to do this, but I would assume that this would be a project for you as a, both a uh, a prominent socialist and a prominent hat wearing socialist. So, oh, thank you. What a nice thing to say, <laughs> Eric Blanc. Thank you very much again. The article is called uh, "The Birth of the Labor Party Has Many Lessons for Socialists Today." You can read it on JacobinMag.com. Thanks. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, 
subscribe to our print issue or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.